0: I'm so thankful to the Lord for that, that I heard that message that night, and it just really gripped my heart.
1: Roxanne worked second shift, which meant getting home late every night. But one evening was different. Instead of her favorite rock station, she found Focus on the Family on the radio.
0: I didn't find out until sometime later that I actually, you know, got saved or born again or, you know, gave my heart to the Lord that night. I just knew that I prayed the prayer at the end, so I just, you know, was... Probably by that time, almost twelve thirty, it would take me about half of an hour to drive home, and just driving in my car, crying, and <laughs> filled with peace and joy, and and just feeling the presence of the Lord, it was wonderful.
1: I'm Jim Daly. Working together, we can save more families like Roxanne's every month. Become a friend of Focus on the Family and invest in this ministry. Call eight hundred A Family or donate at focusonthefamily.com family.
2: Welcome to Focus on the Family's weekend broadcast. We hope the following program will challenge you and encourage you in your faith journey.
3: One of the greatest gifts you can give your kids is to model for them what marriage should be and to give them the security that comes from seeing a mom and a dad in a loving relationship with God and in a loving relationship with one another.
2: Loving well is a terrific goal for marriage, and you'll hear how to improve the relationship with your spouse on today's episode of Focus on the Family. Thanks for joining us. Your host is Focus President and author Jim Daly, and I'm John Fuller. Uh, Dave and Ashley Willis have been in studio with
1: us several times, but they are also conference speakers with a ministry called XO Marriage, and we're featuring one of their very lively presentations today. And
2: they have a lot to share, so let's roll with it, John. All right. Well, here are Dave and Ashley Willis speaking at an XO Marriage conference on Focus on the Family.
3: We are honored to be here. We're going to talk to you today about really what we believe as we study the Bible, as we interview and have talked to a couple so much older and wiser than we are about three keys that are foundational for bu- building a stronger marriage. But before we get there, I want to give you a little public service announcement. And, and, and that's this. It's something your spouse knows about you that you might not know about yourself. And it's that it's really hard to be married to you. That's right. Now. Yes. This isn't all your fault, okay? This is our theory. A lot of this is your parents' fault. If you course. were messed up before you got into the marriage, <laughs> I'm gonna do a quick survey, just a little interactive exercise to just kind of see where we are. How many of you, like us, we're both firstborns? How many of you are firstborn in your family? Yes.
4: Put those hands up real quick, you know? Yes,
3: a lot of strong, confident people, you know? Most presidents yes. are firstborn. You know, we raise those hands fat, fast. <laughs> But here's the thing we firstborns don't talk about for all our confidence. We are hard to love, and it's because we're, we're messed up. But totally. it's not your fault. It's your parents' fault. When your parents brought you home from the hospital, they had no idea what they were doing. They had no idea. It's amazing we even survived. you know. And then, this is what happens, they start having other kids, and they, they feel like they need to make an example out of the firstborn, right? To scare yeah. the other ones. So, firstborns are are hard to love. But.
4: Yes, but then we come to, who's the baby? Who's the baby in their family? Yes, you're like, look at me, I'm the baby. Right? I love attention. I love attention. And you know, of course, babies in the family are even more messed up than the firstborn. Way more you messed know this, right? Up. And it makes you, it makes you a little hard to love because, you know, your parents, by the time you came along, you, they were just so exhausted. And they, and they just let you eat pizza for breakfast. They, they let you stay up way later than your siblings. I mean, they probably rocked you. They rocked you like a crazy long time till you were like in high school. I mean, we do these weird things with the babies. And so it makes us a little bit hard to love, right? Yeah,
3: it, it does. You babies, you're, 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 <laughs> we love you. Jesus loves you, but you're hard to love. <laughs> now, how many of you are, are a middle child? Yeah, a couple of you cheered, but most of you were like, no one's ever asked about me before, right? yeah. I, I, <laughs> Am I allowed to raise my hand? I never, mom and dad never noticed me, you know? And you guys oh, middle child. are, of course, the most messed up. And it's not, it's not your fault. It's, it's really not your fault at all. It's that your parents, they didn't even know you were there. You know, they, they spent so much energy on the firstborn, and then they baby the baby. They might have had some kids in between. They're not even sure. Know. You know, you go to their house right now, there's not even a picture of you, and I'm so sorry. I mean, I'm so sorry that you had to endure that. I'm not even going to ask about you only, children, because you've raised your hands three times already. You, do, you have. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> And so the truth is, we, we all bring some baggage into the marriage, and honestly, birth order really has nothing to do with it. It's just a funny way of pointing out that all of us come into marriage with some things that make us difficult to love, some blind spots we have, and some of it is the result of our own quirks, some of it's the result of our own sin, our own choices that we've made, and some of it's the result of things that have happened to us that are completely out of our control. And yet God tells us to love at all times, and people usually need love the most in those moments when they deserve it the least, don't they? And God gives his very best to us. He sent his son to us to die for us while we were still sinners. He gave his best when we were at our worst, and then he says, and that's how I want you to love each other. So before we jump into these these three keys, we wanna give you one Bible verse, because if you're like me and sometimes you only remember one thing at a time, we wanna give you that one thing right here at the beginning, because if you do this one thing, then I'm convinced instantly, right. you know, marriage will improve. And it's one, it's one little verse. This can be the life verse for your marriage. And it's a short one. Because if you're like me, you got kind of ADD and, and you like short verses that, that, that pack a bunch. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 14. And it says this, do everything with love. Do everything with love. Now, our, our world has taken that word love and it's said it's just an emotion, it's a feeling that comes, that goes, you can fall into it, you can fall out of it. But as you look at what the Bible says about love, love is a commitment. Love is rooted in action. And, and love is something that we're, we're commanded to do for one another. So everything the Bible says about love, do that for your spouse, the Bible says love is patient, love is kind. How would your marriage look different if you were always patient and always kind to your spouse? Yeah. The Bible says that, that love never gives up. So what would your marriage look like if you both had that mentality that said, we are never going to give up on each other? The, the Bible says to speak kindly, to forgive. If we just do what the Bible says, that sometimes we're more likely to do for strangers and coworkers and people throughout the day than we are for that person that should matter most, our, our spouse. And so if we'll just love and realize that love is not just this empty emotion, but love is this beautiful action that the Holy Spirit empowers within us to to give freely, especially in those moments when our spouse might not be particularly lovable, then our marriage can transform. That's right. So with that in mind, we're gonna jump into, we believe are are, are kind of the three foundational ways to put that love into action. So what do you wanna lead off here?
4: Absolutely. So number one, this is huge, always be honest with each other. Secrets and lies are the enemies of intimacy. There are no secrets, there's no hidden bank accounts, there's no secret cell phones, there's no friends on Facebook they don't want their spouse to know about. There's nothing that we hide from our spouse because when we do this, we don't have the kind of marriage that God wants us to have.
3: Yeah, the the, the level of your honesty is always going to determine the level of your intimacy in marriage. Mm -hmm. And the moment you find yourself keeping secrets from your spouse, then you're already outside the bounds of that covenant that God created. Your marriage is no longer naked. I think God intentionally painted the picture of that first marriage before there was sin, before there was anything getting in the way, and he told us they were naked, not just to paint the picture of the importance of physical intimacy in marriage, but to paint the picture, as Ashley said, of being naked emotionally, mentally, spiritually. Nakedness is, is a picture of saying, I've got nothing to hide from you. There's nothing up my sleeve. I'm not even wearing sleeves. There's nothing that I'm hiding from you. And so if you want your marriage to go to that next level, then take what we call the secret free guarantee. It's saying, I'm not going to keep anything from you and there's no question that's off limits. You can ask me anything and I wanna do my best to give you an honest response. You can ask me anything. And and the first time that I start stepping out of bounds and making a purchase that I don't want you to find out about or having a conversation that I hope you don't find out about, then I'm gonna recognize I'm out of bounds and I'm gonna confess that and I'm gonna fight for trust in our marriage, because trust is the foundation of every healthy marriage. And so we've got to fight for that kind of transparency.
4: And it's true. You know, what, what really having trust starts with being vulnerable with one another, but that word vulnerability has kind of gotten a bad rap in our culture. You know, we live in a culture that says, trust no one. Don't even trust your spouse. And when you go into marriage, you need to have a secret bank account or something just in case it goes wrong. And this even happens among Christians, among Christians, who, you know, we, we know the God that designed marriage. We know what he says about marriage, and yet we get so afraid to completely be vulnerable with our spouse. But God designed us as vulnerable creatures. You know, we're designed first and foremost to be vulnerable with God. We don't hide things from God. He knows it all anyway, but he wants us to come to him and to give it all to him, to surrender everything to him. And as far as human relationships go, marriage is the, the biggest place, the biggest relationship we can have where we can be vulnerable with one another. And when we are, it just binds our hearts. And like Dave said, it's really the first step to intimacy. And you really can't have the kind of physical intimacy that God wants you to have in marriage without having vulnerability first. And so, you know, if we're not willing to be vulnerable with our spouse, we still have that desire. And so what we'll find is we'll, we'll be vulnerable with someone else And like Dave said, we'll step out of bounds of the marriage. We'll have maybe a person at work that we find easy to talk to, and we step out of bounds and we start sharing our hearts with them instead of with our spouse. Or maybe we form a codependent relationship with one of our children. I know people who are more vulnerable and open and honest with their children than they are with their spouse, and that is completely out of whack. That is not what God designed. And really, it's too much to put on our kids, even if they're grown. We're supposed to be vulnerable with our spouse. So it's so important that we we don't hold back we gotta give it all and share it all and say, this is me, this is what I'm feeling. And I'm not ashamed to share it with you because I love you and I trust you.
3: That's, a, that's absolutely right. And, and one thing that I think, especially for those of you who are like us, who are in that season of life where you're raising young kids, is to model for them what marriage should be and to give them the security that comes from seeing a mom and a dad in a loving relationship with God and in a loving relationship with one another.
2: This Focus on the Family broadcast will continue in just a moment. Oh, hey, Mike. Got here as soon as I could. What's going on, man? Hey, I just wanted to give you an update on my marriage. Is it good news? Yeah. Our marriage is going great right now. I couldn't be happier. Dude, that's awesome. Yeah. It's like a solid 5 out of 10. (laughs) Having a marriage that's just okay isn't where couples really want to live. Give yourself and your spouse an
1: all-inclusive weekend where you'll slow your pace and focus on each other. Get more details at focusonthefamily.com getaway. That's focusonthefamily.com slash getaway. Man, I knew my marriage was falling apart. I just didn't know how to fix it. I felt like
0: I would always be alone, even if I stayed married. At Focus on the Family's Hope Restored Marriage Intensive, we offer hope to couples in crisis so they can have the marriage they've always dreamed of. For the first time, I felt like my husband truly heard me. I've received some great tools from the counselors that have changed my life and my marriage. To begin the journey of finding health, go to hoperestored.com today.
2: Thanks for listening to Focus on the Family. Let's resume now with the balance of today's programming.
4: So number two is don't make assumptions about how your spouse feels. When we make assumptions, we limit our ability to hear and understand each other's true feelings. And there is a verse in Ecclesiastes in ten thirteen, where it, it just paints this picture so perfectly. It says, fools base their thoughts on foolish assumptions, so their conclusions are wicked madness. And I don't know about you, maybe you're not as crazy as I am, and maybe you haven't made the same mistakes I have, but I, when I got married to Dave... I thought that when you got married, that your spouse, you know, day by day just became a better mind reader, and that that was just something that happens when you get married. You know, you become professional mind readers of each other, right? And so I started doing this thing where I would just assume that if I stomped around enough, or if I rolled my eyes enough, or if I, you know, kind of paused in my, my speaking enough, I didn't really have to tell him how I felt, because we're married. He's supposed to know me. He should know, right? I would say should quite a bit, well, and there and, usually and was this attitude with it. As too, a guy, you know?
3: I had this idea that whatever she says is what she means, even if she's stomping around.
4: And, and ladies, so, like I didn't don't know. It, do it, that? I, I
3: would think, well, she said That's she's okay. Crazy. If I didn't know better, I'd think she wasn't. But I'm going to go back to watching Sports Center because she said she was okay, right. even though she's stomping around, and it kind of got us into trouble.
4: It did. It did. So I kind of had to learn this the hard way. And there was one word in particular that really got me in trouble a lot. And in our house, we call it the F word. And it is a four-letter F word, not the one you're thinking of. This word is one we use often.
3: But it's it, a cuss word. But it's a cuss
4: word in our house. It truly is. And that word is fine. fine. Like, fine. I'm fine. I mean, I might as well be cussing at him. It's the, it's I'm the fine, you know? Dangerous
3: word. We use it all the time. And here's why. Fine, it ends conversations instead of starting them, doesn't it? Yes. Fine is like guy code for like, it's been a long day. I'm out of words. I don't want to talk. How was your day? Fine, fine. And, you know, our, wife, our wife's trying to connect with us. Right. And, and, and we're just like shutting her down. I'm fine. Or, you know, you would say fine, and, and it would be sometimes masking the, the fact that you're not fine. And so, right. so when we realized that when we were saying fine, F-I-N-E for us actually stood for I'm faking, I'm ignoring, I'm neglecting, I'm evading. That right. when we said fine, that's what we were really saying. And really there was one key moment in our relationship where we realized this word is dangerous, it's causing miscommunication and it's a word we need to remove. Do you wanna relive?
4: Yes, I'll, I'll relive it. And it doesn't paint me in a very good light. In fact, it makes me look quite crazy and like a toddler. And it happened when we were moving and at the time we only had two small kids we had moved to Florida, we had been in temporary housing for a while, and then we finally got a house. And it had just been a hard move. And for any of you who've ever moved, it can be really hard, especially with kids. And when you're adjusting to a new job, a new town, and you miss home, it's just really hard. And it kind of is what I call a sandpaper season. It's like everything is just rubbing you the wrong way. And that was what it was for me during that time. It was a sandpaper season. So I was kind of on edge anyway. And we ended up getting in this house, and I'm putting it together. And normally that's something I love to do. So one morning, I'm putting up a curtain rod and I'm walking up the ladder and I'm using the drill and it's just not quite going in there like I had planned. And it's like, I can't quite get it square and I'm struggling with it. So I'm stomping up and down the stairs and in walks day, fresh from the morning. And he's like, Hey, sweetie, how's it going? And I'm like, fine. And so then I stop back up and he's like, well, good. Because, you know, I was thinking about going on a run and it's just such a beautiful day. And I'm like, okay, whatever. You know, those are two other words that are hard. And, and so he goes, on his run, and the whole time he's gone for like 30 minutes, I'm thinking, how dare he leave? I mean, I clearly wasn't fine. Clearly was not fine, and he's out there running and feeling the wind through his hair and feeling the sun on him like this, and he's glistening. That was amazing. And then he's blowing off steam. I was, I mean, he's just having this great time. It it
3: was so good. (laughs) And I was thinking, I'm so glad Ashley's fine because this feels amazing, and I mean, she's just (laughs) great letting me do this.
4: And, and I'm, I'm just fuming, and I don't, maybe you're not crazy like me, but I was literally having an argument with Dave in my head at the time, and I was, like, winning it, totally winning this argument, and so he comes home, and I'm just, I'm just raring to go, you know, I'm ready, and he's like, whoo, good run, yeah, comes in, and he's like, oh my goodness, sweetie, the curtain rod's still not up, and I'm, like, whip my head I, around. Okay,
3: and I'm I don't like, remember this no, part of the not. story. Yes. It, okay, just to interject real quick, <laughs> I know, like, It's bad. But to give you the full backstory, to help you understand how I could have been led to the conclusion that she didn't want my help is that I'm terrible with tools. We're like the reverse stereotype. She came from a home where her dad could fix and build anything. The show MacGyver is loosely based on her dad's life. Like He could just (laughs) fix it, do it. She thought all guys were like that. And like she married me. I don't even know which end of the hammer to use half the time. So she's really good at this. And most of the time, when she says, I got this, it's a nice way of saying You don't know how to do this. You're going to put holes in the wall. I'm just going to do this. And so I thought that this was one of those times, and and I I misread the situation. (laughs) I literally whipped my head around, and I said, I can't even look at you right now. Where I replayed the whole thing in my head, and I'm like, oh, I totally misread that.
4: I honestly realized in that moment... How completely ridiculous it was for me to expect him to read my mind, and that I was storming up and down the ladder like a toddler. And I realized, oh my goodness, my husband was listening to my words, and he really thought I was fine. <laughs> and I could have just told him I wasn't. I could have just asked for help. And so I apologized today. I he graciously, you know, accepted my apology, and we realized that we just need to use our words. You know, we tell our kids all the time, use your words. But for some reason, when we're married, we like stop using words sometimes. We just make all these assumptions. What really happens when we start making assumptions like that with one another is communication breaks down. The vulnerability breaks down. The intimacy breaks down. And you just have these two people passing you day to day and not really engaging in, in a real marriage. They're more like business partners or roommates. And God doesn't want that for us. God wants us to have this union, this beautiful partnership with one another. And so we have to stop making assumptions.
3: No, it's it's so true. And that that changed the way that we communicated. And when you change your communication and you get real and you get honest and you get thoughtful and you get consistent in your communication, then everything goes to the next level. And that, that takes us to kind of the final of these these three pillars. And this one I think is is really the most important. Because there's gonna come times in your marriage when you are struggling. And, and, and many of us in this room are struggling right now. Maybe you're not necessarily struggling in your relationship with each other, but you're struggling in some part of your life. I mean, we live in a, in a broken world that has a lot of struggles. I mean, Jesus never promised us a life without struggles. He just promised that we would never face them alone. He said, never will I leave you or forsake you. But he also said, in this life, you you will have troubles. He wanted us to be ready. And in marriage, we have the opportunity to face those troubles and those struggles together in partnership. And we, sadly, we see so many couples who kind of look at their issues as those are my problems, those are her problems, and we face them individually. Mm -hmm. And that's not what marriage is. It has to be unified, that we're gonna face this together. And it leads to this final Principle
4: That's right. Number three says never let your spouse face a struggle without your full partnership, encouragement and support. And a verse that goes along with this is Galatians six two. It says carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. And and Dave and I are no stranger struggles. And uh, we like to really talk about this when we go to conferences because we want you all to know that you're not looking at a couple up here that's never had a reason to divorce or a reason to to have, you know, a communication breakdown. We've had some struggles of our own. And one in particular that I want to share with you is when I went through a four-year battle with anxiety and depression. And it started a little bit after we got married and uh, we were having a lot of trouble with some family members, um, kind of infringing on our marriage, which is a whole other um, issue that could have a whole other talk. But it ended up uh, lingering with me, and I was just dealing with anxiety and depression, and and it it was it was like those commercials you see for medication for these things, where it has like a little person with a cloud over their head, and it's raining, and it's like this dark cloud, and they it's following them around wherever they go. And that's exactly what it feels like. It was like this heaviness over me that I couldn't shake off. And there were days where I had trouble breathing. It felt like something was sitting on my chest. And and I just, I couldn't even figure out exactly what it was that was causing me to be so sad or so anxious. But it, it just got, it got bigger and bigger. And I would pray about it. And, and I wouldn't feel the release necessarily. I mean, God would get me through the day as he always does as our sustainer, but I just, I just could not shake it off. And I, I finally was very real with Dave about it. I mean, I'm sure he could sense that something was wrong with me. And, and you know there would be nights where I couldn't sleep, where I would wake up and feel physically ill and I'd run to the bathroom. And, and my mind would just be spinning with lies because that's what Satan does when he's trying to mess with us. And he, he sure did a number on me. He would tell me things like, Dave's gonna leave you. Because you probably did something wrong to, to feel this way anyway. And you're damaged goods now. I mean, you're not even the woman you used to be. You know, you're not fun anymore. It's, he doesn't feel like he married the same, you know, that his wife is there anymore. So he's probably going to leave you. Oh, and you know what? You must not be a really a strong Christian. Because no strong Christian would have anxiety or depression if they really believed. I had all these thoughts weighing on me day in, day out. And there would be nights where I would wake up. And I just knew that I needed prayer. And I would wake Dave up sometimes like 3 a.m., 4 a.m., And every time you all, every time I woke him up, when I know he was exhausted, I know he had to go to work really early in the morning. He never once said, you know what, Ashley, this has been going on long enough. You need to just put on your big girl pants and you need to handle this yourself. Or he never once said, you know, I'm just really tired of this, I'm exhausted. Can you just call somebody, call somebody else, call your mom, maybe she can pray with you. Every time I woke him up and I asked him for prayer, he would grab my hand, he would pray with me, as long as it took, and these were sometimes some long prayers and and prayers full of tears for me and a a heart racing just because I could not get relief. And Dave would pray with me and I would feel the relief come over me. And then I would sometimes say, you know, sweetie, I just so appreciate your prayers. And I'd understand if if you want to leave me, because I would have those lies. I would have those lies in my mind. And every time he would look me straight in the face and he would say, I love you more today than I have ever loved you even on the day that I married you and I am staying with you, I am never leaving your side. And he would say that to me every time, every time. And you all, if it wasn't for God sustaining me through that time and for a husband who prayed with me time and time again and was with me in my corner and then eventually he helped me take the steps necessary to get some really good Christian counseling, if it wasn't for all of that, I would not be standing here today It looked very bleak for me. I felt very alone before I shared it with my husband and and let him come into this dark place with me and be my partner. But when I did that, everything started to change. And I'm just so thankful. I share this story because I'm so thankful that Dave was there for me because I do see so many couples who are struggling where maybe one couple is dealing with depression or cancer or a, a really bad work situation. And I see them struggling alone and I see their partner feeling like they can't do anything. But let me tell you this, you may not be a counselor. Maybe you don't know the answers, but the best thing you can do for them is get in their corner with them in that dark place and stay by their side till you're able to both walk into that light out of that dark corner. And you will be so glad that you did. So just be there for each other. We have to be there for each other because we will face struggles like Dave said. So we have to face them hand in hand.
3: You have to face them hand in hand. And you can't always pick your struggles, but here's what you need to remember. Every struggle in your marriage, every struggle in your life is going to become a story someday. Mm -hmm. It's either going to be a story about how you got stronger, how you leaned on each other, how you grew in your faith and how you came out stronger on the other side, or it's gonna be a story about why you gave up.
4: You know, the couples with the strongest marriages, with the happiest marriages, they aren't the ones that never had a reason to give up. They're the ones who just refuse to give up through it. They refused and they kept on going and they kept on going and they chose for their story to be one of victory, to be one of coming through the hard times out the other side, one where God was at the center of it all, even in the midst of something that you thought, I don't know if we're gonna make it through this. When you come together and you lean on God together and you refuse to give up, he can do the miraculous and we see it every day. He's still in the business of raising dead things and bringing them back to life. And he does that not only with with uh, people and with sickness, he does it with marriages. He does it with marriages. And so if your marriage is struggling, I don't think it's any accident that you're here. And it's just my hope and prayer that you will hear something and you will let it seep into your heart and you will know that God wants you to stick it out and, and that you have something amazing on the other side of this that you really can't even see right now, but it's something that only God can do. And he wants to do it for you and your marriage today.
2: What a transparent message from Dave and Ashley Willis today on Focus on the
1: Family. I'd agree, John, and that's what uh, they're advocating for, transparency in our marriage relationships as well. Developing that level of open and honest communication with your spouse is something we should all be striving for, and I don't always do it that well. Uh, Gene would attest to that, and we are almost out of time today, so Uh, Let me just remind you that if this program brought up some issues that you'd like help with, please give us a call. Our friendly staff would be happy to listen to your concerns, pray with you, provide a resource or two, and if needed, uh, they can request a call back from one of our Caring Christian counselors. That's a free service that we provide thanks to the donor community that support Focus. And if things are going well for you right now, can I ask you to consider uh, if Focus on the Family has had an impact on your life? to give accordingly so that we can together help others. We're a nonprofit ministry, and we rely on the support of those who benefit from our broadcast, podcast magazines, and all the other resources. And when you make a donation of any amount, we'll send you a copy of the book written by Dave and Ashley Willis called Naked and Healthy, Uncover the Lifestyle Your Mind, Body, Spirit, and Marriage Need. And that will be our way of saying thank you for partnering with us in ministry.
2: Get your copy of the book and a free audio download of this presentation at FocusOnTheFamily.com slash broadcast, or when you call 800, the letter A in the word family. On behalf of Jim Daly and the entire team, thanks for listening today to Focus on the Family. I'm John Fuller inviting you back as we once more help you and your family thrive in Christ. listening to Focus on the Family's weekend broadcast. We'll take a quick break here and then return with another faith-building program for your family. Stay tuned.
4: One in five households cares for a child with special needs. Is yours one of them?
0: If so, we know you want your child to be taken care of no matter what happens. If you want to secure your child's future by preparing a will but need extra guidance for your unique situation, Focus on the Family can help. Download our resource, 15 Questions to Ask if You Have a Child with Special Needs. It's our gift to you at FocusOnTheFamily.com specialneeds Special Needs eBook. Think about today, because if you think about what am I going to do with my child who has special needs when they're 40 years old and yada, 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 that's too overwhelming. So think about today and just say to yourself, can I make it through today? Can I get strength from God to make it through today? And the answer to that is probably going to be yes. Hmm. And then do it that day. And maybe all you can do that day with the love languages is think, how could I use them tomorrow? And that's
2: enough. That's Jolene Philo, and she's with us today on Focus on the Family. Your host is Focus president and author Jim Daly, and I'm John Fuller. You know, John, some of the most amazing
1: people that I've met are those with special needs. I'm thinking of Trevor Hendershot, who was here with his dad mm-hmm. and uh, talked about his difficulty uh, being born with Down syndrome and how he's overcoming that Situation by working uh, for the Ducks, the Anaheim yeah, ducks, ducks, right, and I think the Los Angeles Angels. Mm-hmm. You know, he has more jobs coming at him now <laughs> than anybody I know. And of course, Tyler Sexton, who was born with cerebral palsy, became a physician after being told he couldn't, and uh, he runs a pediatric ward of a hospital. Terrific human being, but. The bottom line is it's not what you grow up to do. It's who you are in Christ and being made in the image of God. And today we're going to talk with a very special guest uh, who has worked with Gary Chapman, who is the author of The Five Love Languages, and how to apply those to families with
2: special needs. Yeah, and there are a lot of challenges if there's a special needs child in the family. And Jolene Philo knows that very well. She and her husband, uh, Hiram, Uh, raised a son with medical special needs and uh, as a teacher Jolene created an inclusive classroom for kids with disabilities Uh, she's authored a number of books for the special needs and disability community and uh, one as you said Jim is called sharing love abundantly in special needs families the five love languages for parents raising children with disabilities we've got copies of that here call us 800 the letter a in the word family we're stopped by focusonthefamily.com dot com slash broadcast.
1: Jolene, welcome to Focus on the Family.
0: Well, thank you. It's great to be here. It's
1: good to have you. And man, just thank you for all those years as a school teacher. I love my school teachers. I think you know, in my chaotic uh, childhood, school teachers brought me consistency and mm-hmm. boundaries, and I just enjoyed it. Once yep. I got into school, I didn't want to go the first day, but then I was caught. And uh, so thank you. I'm sure you have built into many students over the years. And what a great profession.
0: It is. um, It's, I think, sometimes underrated, but it is so important. I agree. Boy, there's, other than being a parent, there's no other opportunity to really speak into a child's life.
1: Oh, shape and mold. Mm -hmm. Let's go back a bit and talk about uh, your husband, how you met, and how did your life with him get started?
0: Well, we met... In college we were very different he was very shy I was very verbal lots of ways that we were different (laughs) but we shared some common values of hard work uh, and an emphasis on family and the importance of family and then our faith as Christians so we met as I said uh, early on and we were married after our junior year we graduated then in 1978 and moved to South Dakota, and that's kind of how our life together began. We
1: love South Dakota. Gene yes. Jean and I and the family, we've done a lot of, uh, you know, camping up there, and what a great state. It is. Let me ask you, though, then Alan came along, your son, and that was not what you expected, but what happened?
0: Well, it wasn't at all what we expected, when I went into labor and we drove to the hospital, which was 90 miles from where we lived. We got there in time for him to be born and at first everything seemed to be fine. Uh, And he started having trouble breathing during the night. The doctor came in the next morning and sat down beside me while I was eating breakfast. And if you know anything about hospitals and doctors, having them sit down beside you is not a good sign. Right. And he said that our son was having trouble breathing. He wanted to move him from the hospital in Spearfish to Rapid City for him to uh, have some more tests. And a few hours later, the pediatrician there called and said that Alan had a tracheal esophageal fistula, which means that his esophagus came down from his throat and formed a blind pouch. It came up from his stomach and hooked into the trachea. So immediate surgery was required. The nearest hospital was at the University of Nebraska in Omaha. So our son was life-flighted before he was a day old and actually had surgery before he was a day old. I
1: mean, can't imagine. He couldn't eat
0: No. I mean, as a
1: newborn baby, I mean, he just couldn't. The plumbing was all backward, right? right? Was the surgery successful?
0: It was. Or
1: surgeries?
0: Yeah, there were many. The first surgery was successful. Uh, We were told up front it had a 92% success rate for, you know, one of the major birth conditions. Uh, He was out of NICU within about two and a half weeks, able to nurse, and everything was going well. He was a bright-eyed, you know, very responsive child. And two months later, when I was nursing him in the night, he quit breathing. So that ended up being another trip down to Spearfish onto Rapid City, where they found out that where they had joined the esophagus, uh, the stricture had closed. And so all the milk was pooling there and then aspirating into his lungs. So he was again sent to uh, Omaha. I got to fly with him this time because I was a nursing mother. He had another surgery. And to make a long story, very short, by the time he was five, he'd had a total of seven surgeries and dozens if not hundreds of medical tests and procedures to get everything functioning correctly.
1: Did, after five then, was he you know, in a better place where things became normal?
0: Yes, and in fact, when we moved from South Dakota to Iowa in 1985, so he was about three or four and started kindergarten a few years later, we had a hard time convincing people that he'd had such a, mm-hmm. a tough beginning. Uh, He did have one more surgery when he was 15, but other than that, Mm. physically he was just fine. You
1: know, once Alan reached that stable point, uh, in your book you talk about your church offering a class that transformed your marriage and parenting. Uh, What was it?
0: It was the first Love Languages book, the Love Languages for Couples. Thus
1: the connection.
0: Yes, yes. So, um, you know, we took the class in Sunday school. There wasn't anything for kids yet. But we did it for the couples, and it was very helpful for us. Right,
1: and those classic, you know, there are a handful of authors that really look into the design that God has made. And I think Gary Chapman really hit something here when he identified those five love languages. I don't want to put you on the spot. You don't have the list. But words of affirmation, quality time, gifts— acts of service and physical touch are those five. Mm -hmm. And so how did you see those begin to apply in your little family?
0: Well, you know, you just kind of start using them when you think that, hmm, if these are effective for adults, maybe they'll work for kids, but you don't really know how to... Apply them for kids. So you just start, or how to figure out what they are in your children. And I
1: don't think Gary up until that point he had not really written about that yet. He now has written about that, how to apply them to your children. But exactly. Th- this was kind of early on, right?
0: Right, right. So we just started, you know, using all of them with our kids, and they seem to thrive with them. And so then I was like, well, if it works in. My family, maybe it'll also work at school. Let
1: me, oh, that's interesting. So let's stick with your family. So you learn this with your husband. So what love language is he?
0: He is physical touch. Okay. Okay. And remember how we talked about the opposites thing? Yes. That's my lowest. (laughs) Okay.
1: That's funny. What is yours?
0: My top one is acts of service followed by words of affirmation really closely.
1: Does your book have the the quiz in it that people can Yes. At the end of chapter one, all the quizzes are in it. Now, with your kids, I remember having this experience, and I told Gary about this on a previous broadcast. I remember Troy particularly. Trent was a little more difficult but Troy I think he was four years old and I was reading the prep to do an interview with Gary and I just asked him off the cuff he was right next to my chair early in the morning and I said which love language is yours four years old being a teacher you can identify with this Mm -hmm. and I started to read him and he goes oh physical touch (laughs) (laughs) He just knew it, Mm -hmm. you know, and he has always been that way. He loves to hug. He loves when I tickle his arm or his back or, you know, whatever it might be. But he had no doubt and still to this day has no doubt.
0: He's a very self-aware person.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Is that kind of common? Do you see that distinction with the kids typically?
0: I have not seen that so much. Um, And maybe it's just because the parents don't really take the time to go through them with their kids. Maybe it's because they aren't educated enough.
1: Mm. Alan had that experience as your son. I think your husband began to stroke his cheek when he was going through such difficulty, right?
0: Yes, yes. It's it's one of my favorite stories, actually. Tell it. When our son was in NICU, of course, I had just had a baby, so there were several times when I would need to go and just rest and take a nap where we were staying and my husband would go in during those hours and he would just be next to Alan's little bed and Alan of course was covered with tubes you know he had drainage tubes and he had things that were monitoring everything and he had a feeding tube and there wasn't a lot of space on him that was available for Mm -hmm. physical contact. So instead of having the nurse try to get Alan up into his arms all the time, which was difficult, Hiram got into the habit of just putting his hand in and stroking Alan's cheek Uh back and forth, back and forth. And of course, there's now research that proves that that's very good for newborns who are in NICU. And that the most amazing part of this story is that for many, many years afterwards, Whenever Alan would get upset, probably till he was about 13 or 14 years old, when he got upset and needed to regulate, he would look at us and ask, rub my cheek. Oh, man. Rub my cheek.
1: <clears throat> wow. He could. He knew it made a difference for yeah, him. Yeah. That's great intuitive parenting, I think. I think Troy's very similar that way when he's stressed. He comes over and puts his arm in front of me, you know, and it's just beautiful. It's a, it's a nice thing. Mm-hmm. And I never pull back. I never say, I can't do that right now. And uh, it's, it's a good way to show that affection. But knowing your children's love language is the key. Now, I can't imagine you in a classroom with how many kids, 20, 30? How did you, how did you A, have the time to really differentiate and know each other's love language?
0: Well, when I was still teaching and I left teaching in 2003, they still didn't have a lot out. I'm not sure what the copyright date is on on the Love Languages book for kids. But I just kind of used them all with Mm -hmm. the whole class. So I figured out ways to use words of affirmation. I figured out ways that either I or someone, one of the other teachers or assistants in my classroom... Could go and listen to a child read one on one. You know, I knew the kids who would benefit from maybe a sticker that they could take home or a pencil. There were others, um, th- so those would be the gifts. Kids, the kids that needed physical touch. I or all of the kids, I made sure and pat them on the shoulder sure. when I went by or ruffle their hair. I do that with bump. John. Yeah, I. I can tell. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> I'm going to ruffle your hair right (laughs) now. But it's so awesome. Jolene, you grew up in a caregiving family. So what what was happening in your family of origin that you kind of learned how to be sensitive to needs around you?
0: Yes. Um, My father was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis when he was 29. So that was way back in 1959. Mm. I was two. Uh, Dad was still working full time when he was diagnosed, but I can't remember him walking. So Ah. his decline was quite swift, and he was in a wheelchair the whole time I was growing up. I have an older sister and a younger brother, Mm -hmm. and we were very active then in dad's care. My parents made a decision that dad would stay in our home at least until we were all grown up, at least in college. Right. And then they also decided that they would do everything they could to make sure we went to college.
1: It sounded like you had an aunt and uncle. I think you mentioned them in the book. What what role did they play to encourage the kids, you and the kids?
0: Yes, they lived in the same town. And my aunt was mom's younger sister. And they just kind of stepped in. And whenever they were doing something exciting, or at least it seemed like pretty exciting when you're six years Mm -hmm. old, They would come over and get our family and take us with them. So we would go swimming. We would go hiking in a park, and Uncle Jim would push Dad's wheelchair. We went on vacations with six kids because they had three kids too. Six kids, four adults, in a station wagon with a wheelchair tied on top. And we would just go state (laughs) to state and see and do things that were impossible for my parents to do. I
1: like the spirit of that. Just live life and go, right? And, yeah, yeah. I have a little bit of a boundary here or a a bump, but I'm going to continue. That was really good of your dad to participate in that way.
0: My dad was that kind of guy. As long as he could get out and go, he was going to go.
1: You know, one of the things in families that do have a a child of special needs um, is sometimes the siblings may not feel noticed uh, because that child understandably uh, consumes a lot of the parent's time right? The caregiving is intense, perhaps. And so the other kids, they're kind of flying under the radar. And they may not get the attention that the parent would love to give them, but is consumed with the other sibling that has special needs. Speak to that issue and knowing their love language.
0: Well, first I want to say that we had that same experience when I was growing up because we did a lot of caregiving for my father. We were very active in pushing his wheelchair, you know, getting him what he needed, fixing him lunch, whatever it was. And sometimes we were almost asked to do too much. And I think it's really important for the children who are in caregiving families who are asked to contribute, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's a great way to learn compassion and to grow up and to learn to accept people who have different abilities and disabilities. But we also have to make sure to protect their childhood and to give them time to be kids which is just what my aunt and uncle did for us when you
1: being that that parent when you feel like your tank is empty how do you find that little reserve energy to make sure that other child gets a piece of your attention at the end of the day when you're tapped out did you use a trigger at all or a little something to say okay remember Mary or Johnny need a little hand on their shoulder, a little word of encouragement?
0: That's a really good question. I think the main thing we have to remember is that kids are kids. And so if our child with a disability needs our time and our energy, and maybe the majority of it, we need to figure out a way to be intentional about giving that to the typical sibling. So we may need to have a little note in our planner saying, have you talked to so-and-so today? Or maybe you have a little notification on your phone that comes up. And just and don't feel
1: guilty about it. Yeah. I mean, use it as a reminder.
0: Yeah, just look at it. Oh, okay. So my child likes physical touch. I'm just going to go over and um, give them a hug. Or I'm going to make sure that I cuddle with them tonight at bedtime. Yeah.
2: This Focus on the Family broadcast will continue in just a moment. Thanks for listening to Focus on the Family. Let's resume now with the balance of today's programming. And Jolene, what I appreciate about this book is it's not just your story. It's, uh, what, 40 different families that contributed? Yes. What are some of the kind of the headlines in terms of what some of the contributions were in terms of how we apply the love languages to our families.
0: Well, I think the first one I went in seeking an answer for was, how do you identify the love language of a child who maybe can't speak? Mm. Or for whatever reason, it's going to be difficult to figure that out. And one of the parents contributed three questions that I like to call the golden questions. As you interact with your child, ask yourself, what calms my child? Mm. What motivates my child? And where does my child choose to spend his or her time? And when you're doing different love language activities with them, you'll notice the ones that are the answers to those questions. And you've probably found their love language. The other thing the parents taught me was how to accommodate for a child's needs. So we have to remember that if the child is deaf, we're going to have to have a way to communicate, right? We need to know sign language or we need to have a pad of paper or the notes app on your phone so you can talk to each other or other communication issues. You've got to make sure you're kind of fluent with their communication board so you can talk to them. You also need to make sure that the accommodations you're doing with a child are in line with their developmental age. So maybe their developmental age is six but they're a 35-year-old young woman. Hmm. So you have to be able to meet their developmental need, but treat them with the respect and the attitude that you would treat any 35-year-old woman. Hmm. So you kind of have to...
1: Yeah, that's interesting and differentiating, actually. I I would think most parents have a a struggle with that because you're kind of locked in that younger child mentality, even though they present as older adult. They have a mind of an eight-year-old, and you kind of get stuck there, I would think. Not that that's right. I'm just saying it's real.
0: It is real. And I've seen many parents, in fact, many of the parents who were interviewed for this book who had ideas of how to do that in just uh, amazing, creative ways. And the book is full of those ideas.
1: Jolene, one of the things that I'm aware of when you read the literature with families that um, you know have that situation where they have a special needs child divorce rates can be really high because of the pressure and the stress mm-hmm. that the marriage is under uh, you know I don't applaud that obviously but I don't live in their shoes I don't know all this all the difficulties they're going through so I get that but I guess the the question is for those couples who are in that place right now maybe again they you know there's just so much demand on on mom that she has very little time for dad and husband and maybe very little time for the other siblings. And so the gaps are all made up somehow, um, but the marriage struggles. What advice do you have for that couple to kind of reset their relationship, even with the demands of a special needs child?
0: I think, first of all, they need to acknowledge that those demands are real, And there's maybe a little more than what they can handle in front of them. So my number one thing would be um, get some help. Mm -hmm. Ask people for help and welcome people into your home. And second, I think you need to make your relationship with your spouse the priority. That needs to come first. And the nice thing about the love languages is, It's really easy to figure out what each other's love languages are, and there are really some simple things that you can do to speak them. So for my husband and I, physical touch is his number one love language, so we make sure we hold hands when we pray at night. That doesn't take any more time than maybe you're doing already. Mm. For somebody who likes uh, receiving gifts or quality time, just get out the good dishes and put dessert on the good dishes that night. How hard is that? You don't need to make it more stuff to do. You need to think about how can you implement it in what you're already doing. And then the third thing is that you have to practice said which is this intentional, unconditional love that Dr. Chapman talks about in all the books.
1: That's a Jewish term, correct?
0: It is, and it means loyalty and love mixed together. So it's that idea of unconditional love, which my husband made clear to me very early in our marriage when we were in a nude place and we didn't have our son yet, but I was just really um, struggling with being away from home and all of that. And my husband looked at me and he said, Jolene, no matter what happens, no matter what you do wrong or what I do wrong, we are in this together. Hmm. And I thought, boy, I'm going to have to figure out how to make this work then because you know that's the end game. We're in this yeah. together. And we have to think that as caregiving couples too were in this together and thankfully I had a very good example in my mother of doing that. She cared for dad for thirty eight years before he died.
1: Well that's true. You did see that and yeah. she must have lived it out well. She did. Yeah. Hasid. Yes. Yeah. I, I don't think
0: that. she ever knew the mm-hmm. term. And I wouldn't say that she was a love language person. Dr. Chapman said to me when we were planning the book, he said, do you have any stories that you could tell about love languages being used in your family as you look back? And I looked at him and said, I just went to visit her at her memory care unit. And when I left, I said, Mom, I love you. And her answer was, That goes without saying. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) That kind of gives you an
1: idea. Yeah. She was not one to wear
0: her love languages on her sleeve.
1: No, and I get that. Jolene, as we close today, I'd love for you to offer some words of encouragement to that mom or dad who's listening right now. And they may simply be overwhelmed with their child's special needs. It's okay to feel that way. Don't feel guilty about that. Uh, we get it. We understand it. Gene uh, and I have relatives that are in that spot. It will not end uh, in a couple of the cases, it's just the situation they're in. And we pray often that those marriages will remain tight, even though they, um, you know, struggle from time to time. But what would be that word that you would give them in that context where? They don't have the energy to add one more thing to their plate. And here we are telling them to start using the love languages. you know. So we are saying the benefit here is going to outweigh the cost of time.
0: I would tell them don't look too far into the future. Think about today. Because if you think about what am I going to do with my child who has special needs when they're 40 years old and yada, 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 that's too overwhelming. So think about today and just say to yourself – Can I make it through today? Can I get strength from God to make it through today? And the answer to that is probably going to be yes. Hmm. And then do it that day. And maybe all you can do that day with the love languages is think, how could I use them tomorrow? And that's enough.
1: Yeah, that's so good, Jolene. And, man, again, thank you where we started for all your years of being a school teacher. Mm -hmm. And this is what keeps hope alive in schools for us as Christian parents, that there are teachers like you who look after our kids so well. And uh, thank you for the book, Sharing Love Abundantly and Special Needs Families. And, uh, you know, if you can't afford to uh, send a gift to Focus, we'll get it into your hands. Just call us. John will give those details. If you can help us to cover the cost of that, to help a family with special needs, we appreciate your financial support to do ministry. And if you can uh, sign up uh, to do that every month, that's great, or a one-time gift. Uh, we'll send you a copy of the book as our way of saying thank you for being part
2: of the ministry. Donate as you can and know that broadcasts like this and resources like Jolene's book and our counseling team, our caring Christian counselors, uh, are made available to you because of donors. Uh, our number is 800, the letter A and the word family, 800-232-6459. Or stop by focusonthefamily.com slash broadcast to learn more.